City, a podcast about cities and the people, politics, and pop culture that shape them. I'm your host, Matthew Boyd, and today we're talking with Teal Phelps Bonderoff about little free libraries, which are those little bookshare boxes you see popping up at people's houses. Teal is one of the most passionate people I've ever met, and he gives us the scoop on what little free libraries are and how they whimsically help shape livable communities. He also addresses some of the little free library haters out there. I hope you enjoy. All right, Teal, thanks so much for joining us today on Monterey Silly Podcast. Oh, it's great to be here, and it's great to follow such great opening theme music. Yeah, you enjoyed it? I do indeed. Yeah, got stuck in your ear? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm saying it's an, it's an earworm or earwolf if we're in podcast world. Yeah, so. that, was, that was the goal. Thankfully, I had a really good producer. I had, I had a hot mess of an idea, and the producer sort of helped me put together into an actual song that worked. Awesome. Yeah. So you're here today to talk to us about Little Free Libraries. I am indeed, yes. So you are the, the world's most pronounced expert on Little Free Libraries. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I would say uh, I, would, I would claim expertise in illegal fishing and confrontational marine conservation strategies, which is my area of expertise yeah. in my, my own personal research. But I, I suppose I might be a central figure in the Little, li- little Free Library movement in Victoria. Great. I go that far. Great. So first off, what is a Little Free Library? So you may have seen them around town or if you're listening outside of Victoria, anywhere in your neighborhood. Little Free Libraries are small book boxes available in public spaces or on private property. It's give a book, take a book. So basically people can take a book, leave a book, uh, little book exchanges. So they're spread out throughout towns and cities. In Victoria, the way I got involved with them was we've been mapping them out for the past few years with the Greater Victoria Placemaking Network. And we have over 125 of them here in Victoria. Wow. And so there are all sorts of things. They're converted newspaper boxes. They're small little boxes that look like birdhouses. There's one that looks like a piano that's covered in characters from, I think, the Muppets. There are some that look like canoes. So there's a whole sort of multiplicity of different designs that are out there. And how did you initially get involved with the Little Free Library? Well, it's a bit of a longer story. So I did my grad work in the UK, and we were in graduate housing. And every year, the master's students, it was a one-year program, would come and they would leave. And there would be piles of identical things by the garbage. So the same plates, the same forks, same irons. Everyone shows up, they buy an iron, they never use it, and they put it back in the garbage. So Marks and Spencer's was making a lot of money off of this, but there was a lot of waste. So what my partner and I did was we started collecting all this stuff in boxes and started the free box. Mm -hmm. So students would leave all their stuff. But of course, there was a two or three month period over the summer when the stuff would accumulate. So we would store it in our little tiny student accommodation. And then when all the new students came in September, we would put it out on a table and people would just come and take it. So it's sort of a way of repurposing and reusing these things. So anyhow, we got kind of interested in the free box. And that got us interested in little sharing libraries. And we started a tool library for bikes in our accommodation. Of course, that that only lasted as long as we were there. I think actually it's still going, but we moved back to Canada. And we started noticing little libraries around town. So every day when I'd cycle to work, I would go down to Oak Bay and I'd pass one little library, uh, the one at Haltane, yeah. the uh, Wise Crow Book Nook. It's beautiful. It's got a little sitting space, community garden. And I started sort of meandering my route and it got to the point where I could do seven little free libraries in one trip. 
And we decided we'd build our own. So we set up one in Rutledge Park, the Rutledge Park LFL. You can follow it on Twitter, like a hundred or like a thousand six hundred other people at Rutledge Park LFL. Shameless plug. Amazingly shameless plug. I'm pretty good at it. I do a lot of <laughs> politics. And uh, we set up a little free library in Rutledge Park. It took a bit of time. I can tell you more about the process a little later on. Hmm. And then we got more interested in mapping them out. So like I said, we were mapping them with the Greater Victoria Placemaking Network. And the first phase of the project was to identify all the little libraries. And the second phase that we're moving into right now is to help fill the gaps in the map. Mm -hmm. So some communities like Fernwood, which is one of our central communities here in Victoria, for those who are outside of town, has a massive diversity of little free libraries. There's one on almost every street in certain areas. And then some communities, some of the more peripheral communities to sort of the core of Victoria, don't have as many libraries. So we're trying to get those sort of help people set them up. We're not building them ourselves, but we're giving advice. We're helping people find the right tools they need to build little libraries. Right. So some, someone con contacts you, and they live in one of these peripheral communities. So how would they go about getting a little free library? Hmm. There's lots of different ways. Uh, one of the ones is they can build it themselves. So we built ours. I think it cost about $75 with plywood, some plexiglass. The stand was actually given to us by the Saanich City. Uh, we had to negotiate for quite a bit of time, but we built it ourselves. Um, some of the other ones, you can also repurpose things. So one of the things that I did recently was we talked to the Times Colonist, which is a local newspaper, and said, hey, do you guys have any old newspaper boxes? And they said, hey, yeah, we, um, we have a few lying around. Well, it turns out they had 13. Mm. So we basically took possession of them and then tweeted out <laughs> who would like a newspaper box, and they were gone in a week. So that was one way. And then more recently, one of our volunteers at the Greater Victoria Placemaking Network uh, her husband had his middle school class build 10 of these things as one of their school projects. And she couldn't find homes for all of them, so we helped her find homes. So basically, those are some of the ways we can directly provide things for people. And then at the moment, we're looking for grants so we can actually have funding to help find materials and run workshops so people can build their own. So with regards to the books themselves, like who controls the inventory? So would it be mm. the person who owns the Little Free Library in front of their house? Are they responsible for making sure the books are always in high supply for people that are coming to visit? Or is it something yeah. that you help out with? The idea is that they're managed by the community. So the principles take a book, leave a book. So it doesn't always have to be at the same time, but you're walking your dog and you see a really good copy of the Hardy Boys for your nephew, you pick it up. And the next time you're walking your dog, you bring a copy of Danielle Steele and you leave it there and the whole process sort of continues. So it's it's supposed to be an organic process. It does help having someone to take care of them. One of the things that I've done more recently, um, and this is why my bike outside is filled with books, is moving books between little libraries to sort of spread diversity about. So you'll notice that some libraries have sort of a theme to them. And that's often just based on what books you're getting, the person who runs them is getting rid of, right? Mm -hmm. So oh, I, I'm tired of reading all my Harlequin romance novels. I'm going to get rid of all of them. I'm going to flood the local little library market. Is, with... that, is that a true story for yourself? No, we got rid of a lot of books on Marxism. I have a lot of duplicates. <laughs> so our little library had sort of a little socialist corner for quite a while. Right, so someone will flood the market with, with books. And so one of the roles I've taken to is whenever I travel around town, I will drop off books at little libraries I haven't visited in a while. And if you think about it, we have 125 or more in Victoria, you could do one of those a day and you, could, you would only get to each library once or twice a year. Right. So it's kind of a high turnover. Also, I tend to pull out some books. So newspapers and magazines tend to look tatty. Some books are badly damaged or they go through the wars a little bit, so you recycle those. Mm -hmm. And also, I uh, usually pull out religious content because it's sort of proselytizing and alienating to some book readers, so yeah. we take those out. Yeah. But it's sort, of a, it's sort of a curation process, which is kind of organic, and then I know other people do it as well because, um, oh, you're on the Twitter account for a Little Free Library, and 
we get messages from people, not just in Victoria, but all around the world, right? And my favorite message is one of my neighbors, who I didn't know was a neighbor, says, uh, hey, little library, I'm putting some manga in you today. And I'm like, oh, this is great. So I run down there and picked it up, right, as she was dropping it off, right? So this is a whole kind of communication process that emerges as well. And there's a, a flourishing Twitter community for little libraries. That's cool. So for those of you who are at home and not able to see this right now, Teal actually showed up with his bicycle, and it was... I've, how many books did you have on your bike right now? Oh, I don't know. 5,000? No, well, the, no. the, the, the pannier holds about 40, maybe 100 soft cover. Yeah. So then you're actually en route to deliver those books to some little free library between here and home. Is that yeah. the purpose of um, it? And I think between here and home, is what I could, if I really meandered and did some hills, probably do eight or nine. Yeah. Uh, and then end up in my own. Yeah. So you hinted at that you store all these books at your house. Oh, yeah. How, so how, we, how many books do you got right now? My own personal library, and these are books I don't give away, is about yeah. 2,000 books. And then the books we picked up from the Times Colonist Book Sale, which is a local uh, book sale, um, we picked up 1,500 books from there. So those are the books that I'm giving away. Under our bed, there's 700 books. We have a small fireplace, which is full of books. There's about 200, 400 in there. The section where we normally store coats by the door has got a human-sized pile of Hardcovers, which is the most stable. <laughs> so, oh, and there, oh, that's right. And there's seven legal boxes of children's books in the closet. So we've got a, a large collection. So you're you're actually literally living inside a little free library in some ways. Well, I mean, people come. Oh, one of my friends came over to visit <laughs> the other day, and I gave her a goodie bag, and she's she's a teacher. So I was like, "Would you like some books?" And she looks at my our, we have these crates of uh, the viewers can't see, but I'm putting my arms out as wide as they can go. These, these large vegetable crates of paperbacks and yeah. science fiction books, and she's she's pulled out twenty or thirty of them. So yeah, we, we yeah if you come visit you always get free yeah, books. I feel like there's a good children's story there in somewhere. Like the, oh, there must the be the guy who lives in the library, something like that. The there's little free library. There's got to be a few along those lines. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean I, I think there, there's a certain point when it comes to of cretinous though, but there's a high enough turnover that they don't molder. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, so then, why do you think little free libraries are, are important for communities? Like, what value do they add? Well, what the biggest thing I think is community building. So, we moved here. We're new to Victoria. I've only been here about three years, and we live in a community which is full of apartment buildings. So unlike residential homes where you get to know your neighbors, they know your name, right? So unlike those kinds of communities, apartments, it's a little bit harder to get into them. You don't get to meet your neighbors as often. And if you stand there long enough, just looking through the books, and by the way, I always organize them by size. And this is controversial, and I'm sure people will tweet about it. It's got to be by size, not by genre. If you think it's by genre, you're wrong. So there's a lot of libraries, librarians right now. That are just freaking out. Oh, I know. <laughs> now, we are talking high-density storage, yeah. right? So at the house, it's high-density. In the little library, I want to fit as many as possible to be as exciting for people right. so as it's possible. Well, it's about size, yeah. It is always about size. Uh, but this is controversial, and I recognize yeah. that. But if I stand there and I put them in, by organize them by size, and it's a bit of Tetrising action going down, you will meet people. You meet your neighbors. You get to learn what books they like. And you have a topic of conversation, which isn't the weather to talk about, because you now talk about books. Right? So to me, they create community. So you start creating relationships with people that are more meaningful than the casual, hey, how's the weather going, kind mm. of thing. And so I, I've always described them as sort of coral reefs of community. If you can imagine sort of fish swimming around a coral reef, they act as sort of a magnet for people and, and children and, and dogs. I'm sure they urinate <laughs> on a bit as well. Yeah. Uh, and so you get this kind of magnet for community. So that to me is the, is the main thing for the little free libraries. Oh, that's a great metaphor, the coral reef. I like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they're, they're also... They're also, in a sense, whimsical. So, like I said, I tweet my, from the perspective of my little library every day. And it's, it's very friendly. It's very lively. It makes fun jokes and puns. Uh, yesterday, I put a book in that was on epitaphs 
500 famous epitaphs from graves. So you know, here lies a book on epitaphs. It was fun. And so to me, for someone who does politics almost all the time, having something whimsical in your life like that, that's still political in a sense, but it adds whimsy to your life. It just, it's, it's lighthearted. So that to me is another element. They add whimsy. They kind of break up the monotony of an urban landscape with placemaking elements totally. that are cute, you know. Mm. But other elements that the little libraries do is they do promote literacy, yeah. right? So particularly children. We have a large children's population in our neighborhood and a scout hall right next to my house. And I'm in the park and I can see the scouts and they come out of the scout hall and they go check the little library, then they get picked up from their parents. So basically, it's an amazing way just to encourage kids to have books. And on the on the element of literacy, when I was doing research for this podcast, I sort of learned about something called book deserts, where mm. I guess there's areas in you know parts of the USA and parts of Canada, I'm sure as well, where there's absolutely no access to libraries. Right? Mm. So these people have, especially young people, have no access to books whatsoever. So where do you even, if you even wanted to read, where would you get a book if you can't afford to buy a book? So I think that little free libraries you know, are sort of moisturizing the book deserts, so to speak, by providing that, uh, I guess, that outlet where otherwise it would not exist. So we've talked about all the positive aspects, builds community, literacy, placemaking, all those types of things. Adds whimsy. Don't forget whimsy. Never have enough whimsy. Do not forget whimsy. And it allows... Unicorn of the urban (laughs) landscape. (laughs) But, da-da-da, this is that moment in the podcast that there are some people that are critical of little free libraries. And those people are unfortunately wrong. (laughs) I'll start, I'll start, shots fired. I had a a feeling you'd say that. So (laughs) there's a couple of librarians on the East Coast who believe that the good intentions of the little uh, free library movement are misguided and they wrote a pretty scathing article recently accusing uh, little free libraries of being elitist. Hmm. And after some geographic analysis, uh, they found that uh, little free libraries only appear in neighborhoods where public libraries are already plentiful and where the majority of people are white. Again, this analysis just took place in um, one or two communities. I just wanted to, uh, a quote that I sort of pulled from their articles was just to really capture it is that uh, little free libraries are examples of performative community enhancement driven more so by the desire to showcase one's passion for books and education than a genuine desire to help the community in a meaningful way. Little free libraries are a highly visible form of self-gratification clearly disguised as book aid. So I guess what, you know, mm-hmm. paraphrasing what the librarians are trying to say is that uh, people who have little free libraries aren't interested in helping the community or building literacy. They're more interested in just sort of showing off to the fact that they like to help the community and to promote literacy. So I have a creeping suspicion that you disagree with this, this article. So I, I'm curious, yeah. like, what, was your, what is your reaction to this information, because it really went viral, I think, too. It did, yeah, and there was, I mean, I, I tweeted at them as well. I didn't read the original source article, um, but I have seen a lot of the news coverage of it, and I've seen interviews with the librarians themselves. One thing I think is interesting is, the first thing I want to mention, when they're talking about people using Little Free Libraries as sort of an ostentatious way of expressing their support of literacy and books, is they often ignore the fact that these are often on public space, right? So when you're looking at First of all, I'm a political scientist, so I'm going to attack their methodology because I have big concerns about it. And the, the, the concern that I had was that they're using information from the organization LittleFreeLibraries.org. This is an organization started in the States, I think, in 2009, which basically promotes, like I would do, people building Little Free Libraries. They now sell Little Free Library kits, and what you can do if you have a little library or you buy one from them is you can buy a plaque and you can register your library on their map. They have 50,000 of them around the world. Your library gets a library charter number, looks super cute. I think it costs about 60 bucks to get this, and that's the model that they use. 
Well, the researchers in the situation have used their map. It's a good map. 50,000 is a large N sample. And they picked two Cal Canadian cities, Calgary and Toronto, and they ran their analysis on that. But the big glaring flaw that I first noticed is that the Little Free Library organization map only shows Little Free Libraries that have registered with the organization, which people can do. We looked, if you look at Victoria, we have nine Little Free Libraries registered with the Little Free Library organization out of 125 plus. So when you're looking at this kind of a sample, it necessarily is ignoring all the little libraries run by people who can't afford 60 bucks to splash on a plaque, which I think is a massive error in their research. Hmm. They're not necessarily an error, but it's, unfortunately, they have no other way of researching this. I did send them our map because I think our map is much more representative. We, I did a map, my partner and I worked on a map with the Greater Victoria Placemaking Network. We crowdsourced the locations. We've confirmed each one with a photograph. I'd urge listeners to go look at it. I would just recommend Googling Victoria Little Free Library map. And you can find about 125 data points spread out across the city. But like I said, only nine of these are officially registered on Little Free Library, official organization, if you will. So when you're looking at the kinds of communities that can afford an extra $60 to put a plaque up, you may actually find what these researchers are finding, which is there are more affluent communities mm. who are maybe predominantly more white, who have higher levels of education. Fair enough. But I think when you look at the spread of little free libraries that aren't mapped, it's quite telling. So that would be the first criticism I have of the research. Not necessarily criticism that they can resolve because they don't have any other data sets. I, again, I've urged them to look at ours because, and this is very recent, of course, I, because ours is more robust. We have a larger end sample. Like if you look at the map of the ones in Toronto, I think there's, I glanced at it. It didn't look like there was more than 25 or 30 little free libraries on that map. And I guarantee you there's more than 100 in Toronto. What's interesting also is you don't tend to see the clustering of little free libraries and wealthy communities in Victoria. And the reason that is, is, well, we, well I can hypothesize the reason being that very wealthy communities see little free libraries as elements that kind of break down the control they have over their urban landscape. So they're a little bit too kitschy and they're a little bit too informal for the sort of formal structure of like a gated community, if you will. And you can see, though, the very close connection between little free libraries and community. If you look in Victoria, the community with the most little free libraries is Fernwood. When you go to Fernwood, you see all sorts of elements of placemaking. So you've got every electrical pole is painted and they paint them every year. And you've got little free libraries and you have parks and community gardens and you have a sense of community. Is this a wealthy community in Victoria? Probably, I mean, everyone in Victoria is decently wealthy because the cost of living here is insane. But it's not the most wealthy community in Victoria by far. And so it kind of challenges the assumptions of the research. And they do point out they've only got two cities and they picked two wealthy cities. And I, I, again, I challenge their, their model. But that was sort of my, my first kind of I guess, shots fired as far as where the research study is going. The, uh, in a sense, if you look into the research that the, the librarians did, there's a bit of shock headline stuff too, because they don't oppose little free libraries as much as the organization itself and some of the elements, right? I see. But the quote that you read is really interesting because to me what it ignores is little free libraries role in, in the sharing economy. So I don't, this to return to what you're saying, you know, the idea of them being sort of forms of self-gratification cleverly devised as book aid, that in and of itself I think is challenging because it's not book aid. In a sense, it's an exchange between equals. I leave a book, someone takes a book. Who do I know who's taking the book? Well, must I have a camera? No. And so it's part of the sharing economy. And when you hear the sharing economy, most people think Uber and Airbnb. 
But there's a whole world of sharing economy elements that are radical free exchange between people. I wouldn't even call it radical. Um, maybe radical in the sense of returning to traditional forms of exchange. So this part of the sharing economy obviates the need for cash. It obviates the need to buy things. It even obviates the need to own things. Because now you don't own books. You simply just pass them around. Now, if one runs their own library, like an actual state library or municipal library, this is sort of a smaller, I guess it's a peripheral form of network exchange that's taking place away from the central sort of core of the library. But I don't think it's necessarily in conflict with it. I think it's cooperative in that central libraries, proper, large libraries, I don't know if you have a proper term, but libraries themselves distribute books. And they distribute good books that are good quality and they have lots of other services they provide. Whereas the Little Free Library is sort of an informal exchange. So I think it's a different form of exchange that runs in parallel with normal libraries. I don't like the term normal, but conventional libraries. Yeah, but so but speaking of names, because it's almost difficult defining normal library. Local yeah, library, yeah it's, it's hard to say what's normal. I mean, <clears throat> most libraries I wouldn't want. And I wonder if the, the authors of this um, article sort of criticizing Little Free Libraries, is it more the usage of the word library? Because I think the word library has become sort of a sacred institution that our communities have. In the sense that libraries are one of the last places, and I heard this quote from someone smarter than myself, but uh, libraries are the last places that you can go where you're still treated as a citizen as opposed to being treated as a consumer, right? No one's trying to sell you anything. Mm -hmm. Whereas a little free library, is there a librarian there? Is it that same digital inclusion that a library mm -hmm. offers? Or, as you say, is it more of a sharing economy type, book exchange type of thing? And I say this only as sort of the devil's advocate position, that, you know, is it, is it the concept of the Little Free Libraries or is it the branding itself that is causing the conflict for some of the more traditionalist mm -hmm. librarians that exist? I think the term library is very powerful, but I think that one doesn't protect the institution of libraries by walling it off. So, and I think the future has to be the sharing economy. I, I, and you'll notice I didn't say it should be. It has to be insofar as if you continue the commercialization of, of all things, you ultimately... You feed the beast that's destroying the planet and yeah. destroying communities. When you, you create a sharing between people, not only do you reduce that commodification, you kind of you, you start to confront some of the, the hyper-consumption that is capitalism, but you also build community. Because when you exchange things and you share them, you're sharing them with someone else. So you're creating a relationship. Yeah. Which is, again, I think they ignored this in their study. So to return to your original question on how these change communities... They're seen as book aid. I see them as coral reef for communities. Right. And so in a sense, you are fostering community around them. And I don't see them as being these kinds of visible elements in the landscape that are standoffish. I see them as things that draw people in. Right. So the, the little free libraries aren't meant to replace the traditional libraries. And I guess the other perspective, and I'm just assuming or guessing, I'm speculating of what these librarians were thinking uh, sort of their frame of mind when they came to writing this is that obviously, uh, and again, playing the devil's advocate, but finding funding to support libraries is becoming increasingly mm -hmm. challenging because there's limited funding for all of these community programs. So I think there's just maybe perhaps a fear that if suddenly little free libraries take off, then the decision makers who hold the purse strings suddenly say, well, why do we need these uh, uh, official libraries when all of these little free libraries seem to be doing just fine? And suddenly the funding for that uh, more institutionalized library is suddenly cut. Again, that's just speculation, but I'm sure that may have uh, crossed uh, someone's mind along the way, that it simply just gets replaced by this uh, free service that's being provided. What's really interesting there is I think 
if one notices the amount of community that's built up around, not just little libraries, I'm not gonna claim they're the only thing that builds community, of course they're not, but when you use placemaking elements and you incorporate them into the, the cityscape, it creates community and I think that fosters political engagement. So the, if the concern is that people are cutting funds to libraries, the solution is politics. The solution is don't vote for the guys cutting funding to your library. Don't vote for the woman who's gonna cut funds to this project. Vote for people who are gonna invest in these things. How do you mobilize people? Through community engagement. So I think, in a sense, they're missing part of the point of the power of community, which is if people in the community don't want their library to be shut down, they need to work together. How do you work together? You need to know your neighbor. So before you can go and create an angry mob to march to the mayor's office to stop him from closing your library or whatever level of government's attacking your library, you need to have someone sharpen your pitchfork. Well, right. Bob, your neighbor's got a sharpener, and uh, you know, Roberta down the street's got a whole selection of you know, torches, and uh, Fred's got matches. Let's do this, yeah. right? And that can only happen if you know your neighbors. Yeah. That so, was a, like, the image of people just yeah. like books in one hand, pitchforks in the other. It's right of a Simpsons episode, I think. Oh, totally. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> right. Yeah. So you're saying then that libraries, little free libraries and traditional libraries, for again, lack of a better word, are, are, should coexist and are actually stronger together than they would be apart. Mm. And, 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 and expanded and continued to grow and expand. Yeah. I mean, for example, I think our public library system benefits heavily from expanding into things like tool libraries or from expanding its things on offer. And you'll notice this is sort of a challenge of conventional libraries to incorporate things like having computers and having workshop spaces because they recognize that in a world where people maybe read fewer books, um, I think it, online reading has reduced book sales. This is an ongoing debate within the publishing community, which I'm not as well versed on as I should be. But they start adapting different services. And I think if you can start expanding the role of the, the library, and the community association, the community organization, then you ultimately start, I guess, building better communities. Yeah. Something that I've always loved about libraries, and I love libraries more than anyone else there, I think they just make, uh, you know, there's just such great community institutions, mm. and they benefit everybody. Everybody's welcome. Uh, but one of the best parts about them that I've found in the past, you know, several years is they evolve very, very quickly with regards to the changes in technology or changes in culture. And something that came up, you know, over the last, you know, several years is ebooks. You sort of mentioned that. Yeah. But as soon as ebooks came out, I think there were some people, you know, who, you know, were ready to write the eulogy for libraries because you're not going to need libraries anymore because people don't need books. But what happened is that most libraries just adapted and they started getting ebooks yeah. with regards to they can suddenly, you know, take an ebook out for two weeks. So I wonder, you know, summarizing general libraries' resiliency and adaptability. I'm excited to see how they're going to embrace little free libraries, you mm -hmm. know, around Canada and our own community and everyone else. So I think there's a lot of opportunities there where, you know, a rising tide brings up all ships. Yeah. Right? So it's only good for the community and only good for literacy. And this infighting that exists in this paper, again, it's sensationalized and I think it was meant to, to raise a conversation. I guess the question to that, though, is that do you think this paper has actually benefited you in some ways more because it's essentially brought more attention to Little Free Libraries than otherwise would have been seen? The times when Little Libraries rise in prominence in the media are three things. One, when someone criticizes them, like this article. Two, when there's sort of a heartwarming story of someone building a little library. So local Boy Scout builds library. Um, and then the third one is, of course, when something bad happens to a little library. Every so often there's an incident, right? And if you look at the number of little libraries, the number of incidents, I'd say they're very low, but uh, once a year something happens to one. It's defaced or damaged, right? So those three stories, one very positive, yay, heartwarming story, someone builds a little library. Two, someone criticizes the libraries. Three, a little library's damaged. So in a sense, it adds to the communication around it. 
starts conversations of those natures. In, insofar as it starts a conversation, to me what's really interesting is you have a baseline paper, but now we have methodological, we can expand their methodology. Like I said, they only use the Little Free Library map. We could expand them to use ours, right? You could start looking at other factors. So I would encourage them to look at Victoria because we have a more robust map that includes other libraries. So yeah, in a sense, I think it's good to have a conversation on this. It gives yeah. me something to talk about. Um, and I think when you study things rigorously, you're able to plan better. So one of the things I do is political strategy. And I work with a lot of NGOs, helping them make better decisions and win campaigns. So it's really difficult to do that without robust data. So one of the reasons why we wanted to map little free libraries in Victoria in the first place was so we knew where they were, so we could fill in gaps. If you're just starting to build little free libraries randomly, it's also good, by the way, but it's less rigorous, right? You have a stronger case to make when you go to the city and you say, when we started this project, there was 92 little libraries. Now there's 125, so we can see a marked increase. Now, did we cause all that to happen? No. Some of it was we just identified new libraries. But having that kind of data allows you to plan. So, Teal, sort of wrapping up, uh, you may not be the world's most pronounced expert on little free libraries, but I, I would find it difficult to find someone more passionate than you about little free libraries. So I think it's contagious, and I think it's just awesome. You have an awesome story, and keep doing what you're doing and uh, supporting community and literacy and placemaking. I guess my final question, this is more of just a sort of a fun question because it was a great discussion, is that do you ever see yourself writing your own book about Little Free Libraries that will someday be placed inside a Little Free Library? Was, well, would that be, is that sort of the full circle? It's super meta. Right now? It, it, that's very meta. I, I like the idea of actually building a tiny Little Free Library maquette and sticking it in my little library, just as sort of like this meta like regression. And then, you know, you could have sort of one of those endless mirror things. They did have an idea of doing a sort of, a sort of picture book of little libraries. There's one out there, by the way. The Little Free Library organization printed a book and it sort yeah. of does showcases little libraries. What's really interesting about them is they create stories. I think there's a lot of potential to do a kind of book where you interviewed people who ran their libraries and you told them stories. That's an awesome idea. You know, remember that time you found the 1978 plumbing code and then someone took it? Or we one of our neighbors insists on taking, we put a trilogy of books out, they insist on taking number two. And we're just like, come on! And I, I don't know who they are, but you know, but little you know, anecdotes like that. And uh, I think there's a lot of potential. The thing I'd end on is, the thing I like most about libraries is the whimsy they add to your life. The sense of discovery that you get going to a library, anything could be there, and probably will. And so it's exciting, and I think that kind of whimsy counteracts the kind of darker forces of politics we've been seeing growing on the horizon. That kind of turns people off politics. It kind of forces people in, you know, in more insularly. Mm-hmm. You know, it says, oh, we're going to build a wall. We'll, we'll retreat into our apartment. We'll retreat into our home. And so placemaking has never been more important because it gets people into their communities. And you want to make it as open and accessible as possible. And something as whimsical as a little library tweeting out its favorite book or its most inappropriate book cover or excited that it has its first copy of Nana or whatever is one way of getting people to re-engage with the world in a more constructive and positive way. That's awesome. That's a great word to end with. Whimsical. So, Teal, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, can't wait to check out a little free library sometime soon. Hey, guys, thanks for listening. If you enjoy the show, please be sure to spread the word or maybe even write a review on iTunes, and be sure to find out more at monorailcity.com. And if you're interested in finding out more about Teal and his work, please visit theideatree.ca. In closing, remember to be kind to your neighbors, support your local libraries, and remember that the world needs more things that are whimsical. We'll see you next time. Monorail City, Monorail City.